Well, it's a great privilege to be with you tonight. Thank you for hosting, Greg and Jeff. Thank you for the introduction. I wasn't sure if it was an introduction or if I had died, so <laughs> that's, uh, that's good. Appreciate that. He gave all those international issues there. My parents are from Ireland, so uh, my parents came um, in the early 50s from Northern Ireland, so uh, moved in, immigrated to Canada first, and and then um, we came. They came down to the states, and so I'm the only Yank in the bunch in in our house. Um, let's pray together as we prepare to look at the Word of God, Father. How thankful we are that Your Word is living and active, and sharper than any two-edged sword. How thankful we are for the Word of God. How thankful we are that it is our source and our stay. In a world of confusion, it is our anchor. And so, Father, tonight we pray that you would encourage us with your word through the ministry of your spirit to the glory of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And, Father, we would ask even tonight in the subject matter that we deal with that you would show us Christ through the word. Father, I pray that you would bless each that that you have gathered into this place tonight. We ask that you would be pleased to plant your word deep in our hearts, that you would send us forward from this place encouraged and convicted to do that which you've called us to do with your word for the glory of Christ. And so we'll, we'll commit these things to you and ask for it now in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. A couple finds out that their baby is stillborn. A young mother of three has been diagnosed with terminal cancer. A woman finds out that her husband is cross-dressing and going to gay bars. A young husband and father of four drowns in front of his family while trying to save a little boy himself from drowning. After 25 years of making a profession of faith, a man discovers that he truly is not a Christian and enters into deep depression. A beautiful 21-year-old daughter whose life is just ahead of her is killed instantly in a terrible accident. A couple comes in claiming that their marriage is over because of an affair and they want to get a divorce. A six-year-old boy dies of cancer and his parents are devastated. A church member whose family are also members of the church continues to refuse to repent and to turn from his sin so that church discipline needs to be exercised which will affect all the other members of the unrepentant one's family as well. Now brethren, each of these is a real life situation each of these are real-life situations that I have known of, not necessarily had to counsel through, but have known of. Each of these are life situations which pastors will have to deal with. Each one of these all have a common denominator, and any of these situations would be considered as a crisis by those who are going through them. In addition, they all affect the soul, and they all demand a response from the soul. As pastors, as Christians, we know that this list could go on and on and on. And in that, we're reminded that Jesus said, in this world, you will have tribulation. Brothers, these are the kinds of crises being endured by your sheep, which are scattered throughout your congregation, scattered throughout your sanctuary, every Sunday. And certainly these are the kinds of crises that those in the world experience who wander outside the walls of your church. Such a truth is a common experience then of grief and pain causing such crises can, and brothers, I would say even should, be a real gospel opportunity for the biblically convinced pastor and the biblically prepared pastor. Now those are two phrases upon which we will
place our focus tonight. The biblically convinced pastor and the biblically prepared pastor. As we think of biblical counseling being the pastor's opportunity in crisis. For indeed, it is an opportunity in crisis. And so let us address first tonight the biblically convinced pastor. Let me begin by addressing just a few things. I will not pretend to be here to teach many of you brethren these things, but simply by the grace of God to remind and encourage you. Let me also say that uh, to divine to define biblically uh, convinced, let's take a look at that for a moment. Biblical counseling is an area that I think we have lost a focus upon in the church, and I will grant you it is an area that for me is, a, is a, an area of passion. I'm very passionate about this matter of biblical counseling. I think we're helped when we understand that the Puritans rightly called what we call biblical counseling, the Puritans called it soul care. The care of the soul. Now, as MacArthur states, the Puritans spoke of the minister's responsibility as the cure of souls. Think of that. The cure of souls. They understood that the only reliable help for the human soul is the infallible truth of Scripture applied by the Spirit of God. They knew that the only genuine, effective, or permanent cure for the soul's maladies is the transformation wrought by God's grace in the heart of a believer. The Puritans had an understanding of that truth. And the Puritans knew that each person who was going through a crisis, no matter what that crisis may be, brought a soul issue to that crisis. Now, in their time, Puritan pastors were known then as physicians of the soul. Physicians of the soul. Therefore, as Keller says, they had the first Protestant school of biblical counseling. Isn't that what you would like to be known as, brothers? Physician of the soul? We have doctors of ministry. We have doctors of theology. We have all these great... Doctors, I'm not downing any of those, but wouldn't it be great to know, especially by your own people, as a physician of the soul? Someone who cares and tends ably for the soul? Brothers, I strongly believe that the church today needs pastors again who are known as physicians of the soul. For the truth is that as pastors, we cannot properly deal with the fragile souls who have endured such difficult personal crises apart from the Word of God. We can't deal with them properly if we're not bringing the full orb counsel of the world, Word of God to what they're facing. And further, we especially cannot adequately address such soul, souls in crisis if we doubt that the Word of God is sufficient for every soul in crisis and that God in His providence may bring these people through your door and, pardon the metaphor, but allow it for me, just as we're told a dog senses if you're fearful of it. Have you ever seen people who are afraid? I don't know if any of you are dog owners. We have two. My, my daughter talked me into a second one just this summer, another puppy. And uh, now we've been bamboozled into having two again. I don't know if you've ever seen people who are afraid of dogs, but the dog sort of seems to sense that. It's a funny thing too, unlike cats. Dogs... Um, you know, dogs come when you call them and stuff like that. You know, stuff that cats just sort of refuse to do. You're probably cat owners and that's all right. And we will pray for you. But dogs pick up a sense of fear. I, I would suggest to you that in a similar way, people pick up a sense of a lack of confidence from you in the Word of God. If, if, if your people come through the door with a crisis and they sense that you don't have confidence yourself in the Word of God, they're going to pick that up. They're going to, as it were, they're going to sense that, smell that. And so, brothers, there really can't be room for doubt in our minds about the sufficiency and the power of the Word of God if we're going to be effective shepherds in the times of such crises. Therefore, in a world that belittles the power and the usefulness of the Word of God at such times, as his under-shepherds, we need to be encouraged to remember that at the end of the day, the Bible is the only book we need for souls in crisis. Did you hear me? At the end of the day, your Bible is the only book that you need for souls in crisis. For the, the Word of God and the counsel from the Word is the most powerful 
and it is the safest counsel of all. I remember years ago before we got fully engaged and before the Lord dealt with me in this full engagement with uh, the sufficiency of the Scriptures that we hosted a conference. In fact, I can tell you it was the year that Bill Good died because um, he was supposed to be coming out to uh, pastor's meetings that, that we were uh, hosting in those days. And instead of Bill Good, Randy Patton came and, and um, led that meeting. And we just did a one-day symposium for the pastors. And at the end of that uh, one-day symposium, one of the men pulled me aside and said, I just want to thank you so much for hosting this and for having this today. I said, well, it was, it was certainly our, our pleasure to do that. And here's what he said. You know, before I came... Now, this is a pastor, graduate of seminary, okay? Before I came today, I thought I had to have a book in my library on every possible problem that a person could have. And by the end of today, I realize I only need one, and it's my Bible. He doesn't know what he did for me on that day. That was such an encouragement to me. And, and the reality is that that is true. We have enough. We have all that we need in the written word of God to deal with the crises that people are going through because it's a crisis that is, affects their souls. So as we consider our subject matter tonight, first and foremost, we must begin with the presupposition that the Bible really is sufficient and therefore the Bible is enough in dealing with the kinds of crises that we've mentioned and certainly more. I mean, we haven't even broached the matter of suicide. And you probably, I know our brother is going to come and address these issues. You, you, you're probably already dealing with that in, in the counseling setting or in your pastoral ministry at least. And so we, it, we have to be convinced that our Bibles are sufficient in dealing with these things. This is what Peter mentions in 2 Peter 1.3, that God has given to us everything we need for life and godliness. And it's contained in the knowledge of Christ, which is given to us in the Word of God. And so, brethren, the Reformers had it right when so long ago they took up the cry, sola scriptura, the Bible, alone. And I would tell you that we as pastors need to continue to echo that cry, the Bible, alone. That we find ourselves living now in an age which questions not only the veracity of the Bible, but also, by extension, the usefulness of the Bible is nothing new. The Word of God has always been under attack outside the walls of the church. What is new is that more and more those claiming to be shepherds in Christ's fold are now the very ones who seem to be questioning the Word of God the most and questioning the Word of God's usefulness the most. We've defended attacks against the Word of God when it comes to creation. We've defended attacks against the Word of God when it comes to the way of salvation. And brothers, so must now we do when we consider how it is that we are to counsel. We cannot capitulate on the sufficiency of the Word of God. We can't. Because if we do, we've given up what we need to help the souls of people in crisis. For example, my seminary textbook for pastoral counseling says the following. Surely there are times, many times, when a sensitive, psychologically trained, committed Christian counselor can help people through psychological techniques and with psychological insights that God has allowed us to discover but that he has not chosen to reveal in the Bible. Now listen, the word of God never claims to have all the answers to all of life's problems. That's a seminary textbook that was given to me in the pastoral counseling class at, that I took. Now, how do you like that? So this is what we're training young men to come out into the ministry and they're already coming out while the devil laughs and they're already saying, this really isn't enough to deal with the serious problems that people are bringing into the counseling setting. In fact, in my own ministry, and I'll spare you the story, but in my own ministry, this became an issue in the church that I was pastoring, and my stand on the sufficiency of the Word of God. And I had one of the leaders come and say to me in a private meeting, Pastor, we're, we don't mind you counseling people with small problems, with little problems, but we don't want you to counsel people who have big problems, who have serious problems. That, that's what we... We need professional help for that. 
You see where this is headed? Another best-selling Christian counselor has written that Christian counselors who believe that the Bible alone is a sufficient guide for counseling, especially in crisis situations, are frequently guilty of, here's the direct quote, a non-thinking and simplistic understanding of life and its problems. You just don't get it. You just don't understand how serious the problem is. If you say, take two verses and call me in the morning, you just don't understand the seriousness of the problem of men's souls. Against such prevalent thinking then in the church today, may we, brethren, as pastors, facing times of crisis with our sheep, be refreshed, encouraged, and reminded about the precious, blessed word of God in the care of men's souls. We need to be sure that we do not fall into the temptation to doubt the power, effectiveness, and authority of the Word of God over all such issues. You've heard of what it means for a Christian, perhaps, to act like a practical atheist. Are you familiar with that? We say that Christians, we talk about believing in the sovereignty of God, and we talk about believing in the providence of God, but in our actions, we, we live like practical atheists. I would suggest, brethren, that we see a similar pattern with pastors. Too many pastors say that they believe in the sufficiency of the Word of God, but in practice they act like practical psychologists. And that's a problem. Those who integrate the wisdom of the world into the counseling setting because the presuppositional belief is the Bible really doesn't speak to 21st century problems. And so we need some other help. That's an issue that we must avoid. That's an issue that the psalmist teaches us about when he says in Psalm 138 and verse 2, I will worship towards your holy temple and praise your name for your loving kindness and your truth, for you have magnified your word above all your name. I love that verse. God has magnified his word even above his name. Brethren, we're told here how highly God magnifies his own word. And therefore, brothers, how much more should we not magnify the word of God? How much more should we not treat it with the majesty that it deserves in the counseling setting? You see, we need to be encouraged in the word of God's truthfulness. We need to be encouraged in the word of God's usefulness. And we need to be encouraged in the word of God's power. If the Lord by His Spirit is pleased to do anything in what we're doing here tonight, if you leave here encouraged like that pastor who left and said, I don't need 1,500 books in my Bible, I just need to know this one better, then that would be an answer to my prayer as we prepared for this conference. So we need to understand then the importance of Jesus' words in Matthew 4.4 4, when He says, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. It is God's unaltered word which is most needful in the time of crisis when people are hurting, whether by their own sinful choices or whether by hard and difficult providences. It is the word of God which should be the most pre prominent resource in the pastor's office. I remember visiting someone whom I know and love and sat in his office and looked right behind his chair at his desk. You know, generally we as pastors keep the books that we use the most right next to us, right? I remember uh, Lance Quinn came into my office and I had the five points of Calvinism tucked on a bookshelf way over there and he said, uh-huh. I said, no, I read it. I, I promise, I read it. I, I did. I was blessed by it mightily. I read it. And I looked right behind this dear brother whom I love, and I looked right behind his head, and here was the DSM-4. Right behind him. The DSM-4. The most prominent book in the pastor's study should be the Bible. Should be the Word of God. That should be our go-to book. Why? Because we, we can never promise to change the circumstances of, of people who are in crisis. But we can promise that the word will help them to better endure their circumstance, give them grace which is sufficient for their trial, and comfort them to know that their crisis has a purpose, which is to make them look more like Jesus. 
It's God's word alone which is powerful enough to speak to every crisis, every issue, and every sin. Listen to me. The devil's lie to Eve is still echoing down through the corridors of time. Listen for the hiss of it and what you hear when people talk about the word of God. Did God really say? Did God really say? And that hiss is always to get us to doubt the word of God. The word of God isn't enough to speak to the things that people are going to. Are you going to tell me that the word of God speaks to bulimia? Are you going to tell me that the word of God speaks to cutting? Are you going to tell me that the word of God speaks to the kinds of panic attacks that people in 21st century life have to face? No, the word of God doesn't give us the details for that and I want you to listen to the hiss of the devil's tongue in that language Ed Bulkley states the following the Bible provides the principles necessary to deal with eating disorders non-biogenic depression scholastic failure child abuse bitter memories anxiety and a host of other problems thus integrationists are grossly mistaken when they say that many, perhaps most of the problems people bring to modern counselors are never discussed in the Bible. We're surrounded by many church leaders who are both explicitly and implicitly unloading their Bibles in favor of something or anything else. And these leaders are encouraging those that follow them to do the same. And I often believe, brethren, just a quick thought, no extra charge for this, I often think part of the problem is we don't want to look silly. We don't want to look stupid. We don't want to look like the, the people that, that are accused of saying, oh, take two verses and it's always just sin and, and call me in the morning. And so what do we do? We say, well, there's probably some things there and there's probably some things there and the Bible really doesn't address these things. All things we have to be very, very careful about. Everywhere around us, it seems that the very ones who have been charged with magnifying the word of God are capitulating to the prevailing winds of the culture. In fact, I heard R.C. Sproul and John MacArthur, two separate conferences, but in the same year, both asked a similar question. And the question was, what is the biggest challenge that you see for the church today? And their answer was remarkably the same. And they both said something to this extent. We never thought that we would see in our lifetime, in our ministries, that the word of God would be challenged in the church. The people wouldn't believe the word of God in the church. We see that Jesus himself faced the same issues when the Sadducees tried to trip him up with a question to which he responded, you are in error because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God, Matthew 22 and 29. Jesus plainly tells them that their error was not knowing that the scriptures, because it is God's word, is the very power of God. And so consequently, when we do not know how to properly use the scripture, we do not properly avail ourselves of the very power of God. How sad and devastating this is. Especially when someone comes to the pastor at a time of crisis. Listen, dear brothers. In the care of man's soul, to the extent that we rely on anything else, is the extent to which we will not know the power of God in caring for their souls. Did you get that? To the extent that we rely on anything else is the extent that we will not know the power of God in caring for their souls. Sigmund Freud does not speak to the soul of my sheep better than God does in his work. It just doesn't happen. Turn with me, if you would, to Isaiah chapter 61. I asked when I had to be finished, and um, Greg said sometime today. So, Isaiah 61. We're just going to look briefly at this passage, but really camp on, on another passage tonight in Colossians. But Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 4. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, 
that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. The principle that is important for us to see from this text is that through the proclamation of the word of God, those who are in crisis and those who mourn may be comforted. You catch that, right? How does the comfort come? Through the proclamation of the word of God. Only the word of God is powerful enough to do that. Thus, be encouraged tonight, brother, for amid all the false teaching about the word of God, we know that God's word is powerful in preaching, and God's word is powerful in teaching, and God's word is powerful in counseling. Therefore, there is safety as we rest in the sufficiency of the scripture in the care of men's souls. In the word, there is comfort for the care of the soul in crisis. Our call then is to be ready to administer the word to the sheep, especially at a time of crisis. And so as we think of this, and we think of being convinced about the word of God, please turn with me to Colossians chapter 1. And here we will camp in Colossians chapter 1. Look at verse 24. And we'll just read through the end of the chapter. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for the ages and generations but not revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works in me. Hmm. Here Paul separates and gives us a list of responsibilities of the biblical pastors, a threefold list. And he separates these duties, but yet will agree that there is a close connection still which exists between each one. And so let us just look at these a little bit tonight in connection to understanding the benefit of biblical counseling to a soul in crisis. And, and what, how does Paul begin here for the pastor's responsibility? He, he speaks of preaching, him we preach. Him we preach. Brethren, God has chosen the means of solid biblical preaching as one of the pastor's major ministry obligations. It's a sad and dangerous commentary that so many pastors are setting aside the preaching of the word of God today for other things. For in so doing, they are setting aside both the power and the blessing of God as can only be seen through preaching. Now just, I know right now I'm preaching to the choir, but be encouraged with these truths about preaching. As Hendrickson states, preaching is actually the act of heralding and proclaiming. It is the earnest proclamation of the great news initiated by God. Now think of what we've already read in Isaiah, where we are to proclaim to the captives and to proclaim to those who mourn. Proclaim what? The wisdom of the world? No, the word of God. And this is what we see in preaching. It is the earnest proclamation of of the great news initiated by God. So for our purposes tonight, we'll limit our focus to consider biblical preaching in connection with biblical counseling because the two are connected. Recall that Jesus, in giving his great commission, charges the church in Mark chapter 6 and verse 15 to do what? Go into all the world and do what? And preach. Preach the good news to all creation. Go into all the world that's a mandate, and preach, and preach to all creation. Since the closing of the canon of Scripture, preaching is now seen as the declarative giving out of the finished Word of God. Preaching is comprised of telling people about their, both their need of Christ in salvation, that's what we call evangelism, and their need of living for Him, that's what we call sanctification or edification. Again, the Puritans had a high view of the place of preaching in the life of the church. You know Why? Because their high view of the word led them to hold that word high in preaching. As Sorrell says, the sermon served as a means of corporate counseling 
edifying the body of believers gathered together. Their preaching was never done just to be academic, but always with exhortation and always a call of necessary application to the word which had been spoken in their midst. Sure, you brethren do this at the, at the end of your sermons. At least you, you, you try to put some shoe leather on it for your people, don't you? In, in my own mind, I call it the so what? Now, we've just gone through all of this. Now, so what? And so I guess I say something similar. You'll look for it tonight, I'm sure. My daughter said it's the favorite line of all of the, uh, most of the people in the church when I'm preaching. Because when I come to the end, I'll say, now, by way of application. And my daughter said to me this summer, Dad, you know, my daughter's 12. Dad, you know what, what everybody loves to hear you preach on? You know, I said, what, honey? When you say, now, by way of application. Thank you. She's a little Barnabette, a little encourager. By way of application. Brethren, this is how we should be preaching to our people, isn't it? We're not just preaching to give them facts. We're not interested if they can win a trivial pursuit game. We're interested about what they're doing with the Word of God in the way that they're living. We're exhorting them to keep running the race. No matter what they go through, we're exhorting them in this necessary application of the Word of God. Now, you, you, you don't want to just be academic. You want application. In fact, I guess so much do I say this that uh, one of the mothers came and said their little boy was doing a presentation in school. He had to stand up and give a report. And she said everybody was lined up at the back of the room and some people from our church were there. And at the end he said, now by way of application <laughs> in his report. That's what we want. Isn't that what you want when you preach? You want application. You want the people to be able to walk away and say, I know what that means, and I know what it means now for me in order to obey and to do and to follow. I believe that part of this corporate counseling then includes the opportunity to train our people through preaching to be prepared and then better enabled to know how to go through a crisis when it comes. Let me give you a personal example of that. Preparing your people in that corporate counseling setting through preaching. I mentioned a discipline issue. And just very quickly, and, I, and I'm giving this to the glory of God, right? We had to discipline a young person in our church. It wasn't easy. It was difficult. I mentioned it, I think, about two years ago at the, at the national conference at, when we were together. It was very, very hard, a difficult thing to do. No pastor goes into the ministry to follow Paul's admonition in 1 Corinthians 5 to hand someone over to Satan. It's a hard thing to do, right? And I said to the, a person's, a young person's parents, look, you don't have to come to the service. You, you don't have to come. Um, you, don't, you don't need to do that. Let us just handle this. And the dad said, uh, Pastor, we, we will be there. And we will be sitting where we normally sit on the front row. And I say this to the glory of God and to encourage you men. He said, you've preached to us so much about this that we know what to do and we know what to expect and we don't have any questions. That's corporate counseling in preaching. And what a testimony to see parents sitting in the front row when we had to go through such a difficult situation in the matter of discipline. And you know what I was able to say at the end of that discipline process to our church? None of you, none of you can fuss about this if two parents are sitting right here saying amen. This is the idea that I think we're seeing in this corporate dynamic of preaching in the counsel, that, it, that is this corporate counseling opportunity that we get to train our people before it comes, before the issue comes to be prepared for the crisis, whatever it may be. And then also better encouraging them if they're going through the crisis. This is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians one twenty one that it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. God has chosen to use preaching in order to grow his church. And through the simple act of preaching, we're forced to rely on the blessing of the Spirit of God and not our own talents or methodologies and not our own proclamation or our own ability in the proclamation. 
I've often said to my wife, and you speak a little more freely, you know, sit in the platform just before you come up to the pulpit, and I say, you know what the longest walk for me is in all the world? The longest walk is from that chair to the pulpit. Do you have a sense of that, men, when you preach? The longest walk is from there to here. What am I doing? I can't do this by myself. This is, this is only, only of the Lord. Lord, would you help me by your spirit? Own your word in our hearts as we preach. That's our dependence upon the Lord in the matter of preaching. You see, because through this act, we're forced to rely on the blessing of the Spirit of God and not ourselves. Through preaching, we have the opportunity to encourage those who are presently hurting and in crisis about the promised wonderful comfort of God available to them. And by the same act of preaching, others will be better prepared to face a time of crisis. So I think we get a good picture of what this kind of preaching looks like as we consider the way we likely preach, for example, at a funeral service. And I think we we see this corporate counseling, this corporate concept of counseling through preaching when you preach a funeral service. You preach comfort to the grieving family. You preach the gospel to those who may be there who stand apart from Christ. And you preach to the rest of the people to prepare for death's possible visitation upon them. I think that's the kind of understanding that we should be having pretty much all the time when we preach. And I believe that the biblical record is that when there's faithful preaching of the word of God, there will correspondingly be the conversion of sinners and the edification, the sanctification of the saints. And as Isaiah says, comfort for God's people. The Spirit of God can cause these to happen at the same time and in the same message. But when there's not such preaching, we will see a corresponding limited movement of the Spirit of God. Remember, it is the Word of God which the Holy Spirit promises to bless. And when the Word is absent, so is the promised blessing of the Holy Spirit. Brethren, we don't need to look for new and fresh manifestations of God's working amongst us today. We don't need to travel to to Toronto. We don't need to travel to Pensacola. We don't need to find out where God is moving in some new and fresh way. All we need to do is open up our Bibles and proclaim what he's given us to proclaim. And then the Spirit of God will be evident and own his word and bless his word. And it will not return unto him void. This is why Paul tells Timothy very simply, preach the word. Preach the word. Now that takes us into Paul's next given responsibility. Counseling every man. There's that word, warning everyone. So we have Christ, we preach Christ, him we proclaim, warning everyone. Hmm. In Paul's instruction, we, we see that there is to be a private component to the pastor's feeding as well. Preaching may serve as a means of corporate counseling, but Paul clearly shows us that there is also more to this dynamic of counseling. Now, the word warning may be used in your Bible and has to do with the definition behind biblical counseling. The Greek word here is nuthetantes, and it's a form of the Greek word nutheteo from which the word nuthetic is derived. Nutheteo literally means to put into the mind by admonishing, exhorting, and warning. Paul points out the fact that along with preaching, the pastor must also be engaged in biblically counseling his people individually. This is an important means by which he will also comfort his sheep. Paul says here that it is the God-given responsibility of the pastor to counsel individually from the word of God. We see that Jesus himself serves as the perfect model in this. He preaches publicly to the crowds, but then he sits with the disciples and explains the chal- and challenges them privately with what he's just preached publicly. There's a perfect example of that is what we read in Matthew chapter 13. The parable of the seed and the sower. We, we see a similar example from Paul's own pastoral ministry. I lied to you. Turn to Acts chapter 20. I said we'd camp in Colossians, but let's look at Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20 and verse 19. Serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, 
testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have, not, I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among, you, from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Now Paul is saying here in his farewell address, particularly to the elders of the Ephesian church, that he had an active and engaged counseling ministry with them. In so doing, he, he gives this short summation of his ministry and, and he says to them in verse 31, he warned them, nuthateo. He admonished them, he corrected them, he instructed them. Now according to Adam's Included with this Greek word are the dynamics then of confrontation, concern, and change. The exposing of sin in the counseling setting occurs through loving confrontation with what the Word of God says towards the way in which someone may be living. And contrary to popular belief, certainly counseling is not always done because there's some unconfessed sin in a person's life. And I'm pretty much up to here with that definition of biblical counseling, even from guys who ought to know better to be very truthful with you. We're not just calling out people's sin, but we recognize that all people are sinners. Right? And so we have an understanding that exactly that three-part process needs to, 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 to be had, confrontation, concern, and change. Somehow, brethren, we've done a... a, a and You know, I'm not going to get into this rice thing, but somehow we've done this thing in our culture where if I love my children, I don't discipline my children. We've separated love and discipline. And my Bible tells me that um, part of the way that God evidences his fatherly love for me, in Hebrews, he tells me that he disciplines me. He disciplines me because he loves me. In fact, my dad used to say, um, and we were spanked when we were kids, um, and my dad used to say to me just before I would get clipped, come here, come here. And he would say, what did you do? And I sometimes would fess up and sometimes pretend I didn't have a clue. But anyway, what did you do? He always knew. What did you do? I would say, and he would say, now if you were so-and-so's kid or so-and-so's kid or so-and-so's kid, I wouldn't care what you did, but you're my kid. Now come over here. And sometimes I wished at those moments when I was putting myself across his lap that he loved me just a little bit less <laughs> than he, he had to at that time. We, we've done the same thing when we come to the counseling setting. Somehow we act like it's not loving to confront people about the reality of sin in their lives, even if it's in the middle of a crisis. You know, if a person's going through a crisis, they can sinfully respond to it, right? Now, the most loving thing that we can do to, to someone, if they're you know, flying down the road and you say to them, hey, the bridge is out. The bridge is out up there. You better be careful. Bridge is out. He said, well, you can't tell me that. I pack up my whole family. We're ready to go on this trip. We need to cross that bridge to get to the other side. We're not going to have anything to do. That's How cruel of you. Look what you've done to my children. You've hurt their feelings. Telling us the bridge is out. It's nasty. Well, uh, which is more loving? The kisses of an enemy are deceitful. But faithful are the wounds of a friend. Let's not muddy the waters in this business when we talk about biblical counseling, when we talk about uh, 
bringing people into the, the counseling setting. So we know that people will, will come in for counseling dealing with sin. No, we also know it's not as a result of sin that they always come in for counseling. We know that people will come for counseling dealing with grief and health issues and sadly even victimization. Yet even in these areas, there is still to be confrontation with the Word of God. And you, you might be saying to yourself, see, there they go. Those guys, they can't help it. Those biblical counselors, there's always, they're always confronting. Can't help it. Well, brethren, I'm telling you, there's still going to be confrontation to a person when you're dealing with them in crisis counseling with the Word of God. How so? Meaning that the person is challenged and encouraged to see what God's Word says to their particular issue. There are two great questions to ask, I find, in the counseling setting, whether it's in a crisis situation or not. And here are two great questions. What is God trying to teach you? And how can you bring Him glory? The first question presupposes for us that God is still in charge. You know, when you go through a crisis, my mother was diagnosed with cancer, and when you go through a crisis like that, you feel like the rug has been lifted out from under you. you nothing firm for you to stand upon. But when you hear that question, what is God trying to teach me? You're reminded, wait a minute, God is still in control. God is still sovereign. And usually when I have a person sitting in front of me in that way, I say, give me five to ten answers to this question. What is God trying to teach you? And the second question, how can you bring him glory in this situation? You see, because that presupposes that I still have a responsibility to honor God. They're great questions. To, they're not original to me, but they're certainly great questions to ask even in the middle of the crisis. So we want to comfort them. We want to encourage them to see that the Word of God speaks to their issue and challenge them to believe it even if they're in the middle of the crisis. It's done with a, a heart of concern and a desire to see real biblical change take place in the lives who come in for counsel. And every Christian at some point or another will need such counsel. And so as pastors, we need to be confidently counseling the Word of God in all of these situations. So Paul points out here that one of the major ministries of the pastor that he should be involved in is this matter of individual counseling. It goes part and parcel with preaching and teaching. In fact, I wholeheartedly believe that the church should be a counseling center. Brethren, we shouldn't be sending our sheep away to someone else for counsel. Why, why would we do that? You certainly don't send them away some, on Sunday morning to hear somebody else preach. Do you? But somehow, in the context of church life, we've come to think it's okay for the pastor to say, hey, listen, why don't you go over to somebody else and get the counsel with them? But on Sunday morning, we'd say, I'm preaching. Why aren't you there to hear the word of God? Listen, the pastor who preaches on Sunday should be in his office on Monday through Friday counseling the very people that God has given him to preach to. The sheep should know that they can come to the house of God for comfort and encouragement. Why is that the case? Because biblical counseling will always point people to Jesus Christ. Again, I, I haven't wanted to give too many personal illustrations, but at the very beginning when the Lord was dealing with me in a lot of things, I was counseling a young couple. And um, it was not going well. I, I was, it was eclectic. It was, I was all over the place. Of course, look at the kind of pastoral counseling I had in the seminary, right? Decent seminary, too. Loved, loved the professor and loved my dean. But um, I was counseling this couple. He had $900 a month in phone sex bills. $900 a month. And every, day, every week they came in, it was a hot mess. They just came, it was just a mess. And older men in my life who were pastors were saying to me, you know, it's the ones that you give the most time to that will end up burning you. You know, this kind of stuff. So it was just a mess. And I knew there was a place, a Christian counseling center that people, many of the pastors in our circles were sending people to. And so finally I just, I'm, I had it. And I said, yeah, we're not going to do this anymore. So... Um, you need to go over. And I was convinced he wasn't a believer. Of course, that's not a thing too hard to be convinced about. And I'm pretty sure she wasn't a Christian either. But anyway, I sent them happily, happily, bon voyage. Go, go. And, and they, they went to the 
you know, this Christian counseling center in, uh, in our area. And that was fine by me. I was, you know, finished with that. And, oh, I don't know, probably two or three months later, he comes back, he, he, to say to me, Hey, pastor, I thought you said you were sending us to Christian counseling. I said, I, I did. I sent you a place. It's called a Christian counseling blah, blah place. Yeah. He. Yeah. Um, it's a woman who counsels me. Oh, that's good. $900 a month. And it's a woman who's counseling him. Hmm. I said, oh. Yeah. Never read the Bible. Never pray. Occasionally we'll hear a Bible verse. Occasionally. And it cost me $75 for 45 minutes or whatever. I, I, brethren, I was so convicted. I was so convicted. And I don't say that with any... It makes me sad even to this minute. I was so convicted that what, what had I done with the souls of these people? What had I done? What have I done? You see, I sent them to some place where I wasn't guaranteed that they were going to be pointed to Jesus Christ because the Word of God was not the central focus of the counseling because the Bible always points us to Christ. Integrationist counseling will never purposely point people to Jesus Christ. As Dr. Max says, our counseling instruction is not biblical unless it exalts Jesus Christ. It is not for, enough for us to espouse certain principles and regulations for living because that would be pure behaviorism. If our counseling is truly biblical, people should not come away saying the Bible is a wonderful book. They should also come away saying what a wonderful Savior we have. We should labor in all of our instruction to point our counselees to Jesus Christ. And we will be successful in this if we can help them to behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's what biblical counseling does. Biblical counseling is an important means that Christ has given to His church. It's a God-given means for us to be able to bring the counsel of the Word of God to those who are in crisis. And so one of the things that I'm so thankful for in using the Word of God as the sole source for counseling, I don't have to make it up as I go along. That would be exhausting. I do a lot of counseling through the week. I, I couldn't do that. I, just, that if I, I would be exhausted. If I had to make it up to try to help or comfort people, no, all I need to do is to point them to what the Word of God says. Isn't that great? May I encourage you men to think carefully over this aspect of your pastoral ministry in regard to feeding your sheep. I speak from personal experience in seeing the blessings of the Spirit of God when we give ourselves to the ministry of counseling biblically. Your preaching ministry will be enhanced when you spend concentrated time with your sheep whom God has given you to lead. When you counsel privately with your people, your preaching will rightly be affected because you will be more intimately aware of what your people are facing day by day. And sometimes your people will come to you as they do with me after a Sunday morning and they say, Pastor, were you preaching that to me today? Now, what are you supposed to say as a pastor? Were you preaching that to me today? Yes. What do you think we're doing? Playing hopscotch? Of course we're preaching this to you. But not only to you. Isn't that the great thing about biblical counseling? You get to know your sheep. Ah, and your sheep get to know you. You get to deal with, to understand what they're dealing with in the course of their lives. And so your preaching ministry is enhanced. Now, unless the preacher spends time with his sheep, he will tend to neglect their problems to the detriment of his preaching and to the injury of his congregation. Thus does Paul say that we are also to counsel as pastors. Now, I know that many pastors say that they counsel when they preach and they need not be engaged in counseling any further than that. I have pastors say that to me frequently. I counsel when I preach. You know, I don't have the time to do that kind of counseling through the course of the week. I counsel when I preach. Let me tell you something, brothers. If you don't have the time to do what Paul tells you you should do, then get off of a committee... Stop visiting in the hospital. Let the body life rise up to do what the body life can do and you do what God has given you to do. Somebody say amen to that. That's our charge. You can't walk around and say, yeah, I don't have the time for that. 
I'm uh, doing a third of what I'm supposed to be doing, but I don't have the, I don't really have the, the time for that. You can't just uh, be comfortable, I hope, brothers, in not being engaged in counseling any further than what some would say they're just preaching. And brothers, that's not a fair assessment of what the word means in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 28. Christ we preach, and then we have that word, counseling, nusiteo, admonishing, warning. It's clear that the Spirit joined preaching and counseling as important aspects of ministering the word. And so we see that Paul mentions a third and final area of importance for the pastor who desires to feed his sheep well, and that is teaching. And in this point, allow me to combine the third, this third responsibility that Paul gives here with the second phrase that we also want to address tonight. I hope I haven't confused you. Teaching and the prepared pastor. Okay? I want to combine those two. Teaching and the prepared pastor. Um, we all know that teaching holds the idea of instruction in order that one might be brought to understand a topic or a skill. 1 Timothy 4.13, Paul tells Timothy, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching, and to teaching. In this case, Paul uses the word teaching to describe a systematic way of instruction. Paul wants a systematic instruction of the Word of God for those in his flock. Okay, you with me? That's what teaching is comprised. It's systematic. Brothers, biblical counseling is really nothing other than a biblical systematic in order to counsel the souls of men. It's a biblical systematic. Since it's biblical, such a counseling system can and should therefore be taught so that in turn it might be learned. And so under this heading then, I want to lovingly encourage you men in teaching this area of biblical counseling. First, if you've not been taught this biblical systematic yourself, if you came out of seminary kind of like I came out of seminary, I encourage you to take the time necessary to be taught the practical tools of being able to counsel your sheep Biblically, You'll gain confidence in the word of God. Your people will gain confidence in your handling of the word. And the spirit of God will be that much more actively engaged in the ministry of the word in your church. With such teaching of the word of God, Paul says that the word of Christ is in all wisdom given to those who are being taught. This stands over and against the teaching of the Colossian heretics who were happy to boast of their superior wisdom apart from God's revelation. Sound familiar? It's similar for us today, isn't it? Today we stand against all who are still boastfully arrogant and believing that they are better equipped to deal with the souls of the hurting than the one who has been trained to counsel with the truth from the word of God. You are not deficient, dear brother, when you hold your Bible in your hand and you care for the soul of the one who sits in front of you. Don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed. You're not deficient. You've got the living word of God at your call and the spirit of God who will give it application. You only need to do to use the resources that God has given. Such a systematic teaching of the word of God then brings all wisdom and is within the reach of all. I believe this is exactly what Paul is speaking of when in Romans 15, 14 through 15, he says, Now I myself am confident concerning you, my brethren, that you also are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, Able to, here's the word, admonish. Nuthateo. Able to admonish one another. Able to counsel one another. That, of course, is the pivotal verse that uh, was used by Dr. Adams in writing the book, Competent to Counsel. So we see the relationship between being filled with all knowledge and then being made to be competent to counsel. The two go together, teaching and then being made competent to counsel. And so we see that there's a close connection between counseling and teaching. For Paul's teaching was done with a view to admonishing, and his admonishing was rooted in his teaching, says Hendrickson. Thus, when a person is converted to Christ, they continue to need the preaching of the Word of God. They need to be counseled from the Word of God. They need to be systematically taught the Word of God that their base of understanding for the Christian life will be strengthened and broadened. In Colossians, Paul says that this is the threefold biblical obligation of the pastor. Preaching Christ, counseling from the Word of God, and teaching systematically the Word of God. Secondly, since biblical counseling is a systematic, this means in turn that you can teach your people how to biblically counsel. And hopefully you will even see them follow through with certification. I wish I had the time to tell you men what an encouragement this training has been to our own people. 
We've seen them grow by leaps and bounds and therefore be better prepared to help others as well. Such teaching of your people will further broaden your ministry and expand the proclamation of God's word in your church and your surrounding community. I remember saying this to Dr. Adams in conversation at one point. I don't know him well, but we were talking together and and I remember saying, this says less about my preaching than I'd like it to say. But I've seen more people come to Christ, come to Christ as a result of the counseling ministry than I have seen as a result of the preaching ministry. And he said, oh, I, I know why that's the case. I can tell you exactly why that's the case. And my heart went up my throat because I was going to, thought he was going to say, I've heard you preach. <laughs> <laughs> he said, I can tell you exactly why that's the case. I said, why? He said, because when people come for counseling, they're ready. They're ready. When you stand up to preach, you're preaching to a group of people that comes from all different kinds of situations. But when they come in to see you for counseling, they're ready. The question then, brother, brothers, for us, I think, is are we ready? Are we ready for them? That's why I believe that the church should be, and I believe this wholeheartedly, a counseling center. I love nothing more than to hear our people say this. Not because it builds me up, I hope you take it in the right way, but I love it when I hear people saying in the course of the conversation, I told them that you have to come in and talk to our pastor. Why do I love to hear that? Because it builds me up? No, because our people at least know that there's a guy somewhere who believes that the Bible is enough. The Bible is true. The Bible is all we need. And now we've expanded that and we hear people saying, you've got to come in and talk to this person we have a couple now who's been certified. We have a, 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 one of our elders who's been certified. We have people in the pipeline who are ready to be certified. I believe that the church should be the go-to place for people when they're hurting and people who need counsel. So, here, men, allow me to speak practically to you. I purposely have not preached to you tonight about how to counsel certain crisis issues, but rather have approached this issue on a much broader level. Under this heading of teaching... And being prepared, I would encourage you to know that even as pastors, you can be taught the systematic of biblical counseling. From personal experience, I know it will broaden your ministry in ways that you never thought imaginable. How come? There are a number. How can you be trained? How can you get this practical uh, training? There are a number of wonderful training ministries that exist to help you to be taught and to be trained in this area. Allow me to list just a few. There's the Institute for Neuthetic Studies directed by a Dr. J. Adams himself. There's the Institute for Biblical Counseling and Discipleship, directed by Pastor Jim Neuheiser, a fellow fire pastor and board member. There's the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors, formerly known as NANC, directed by Dr. Heath Lambert. And finally, there's the Biblical Counseling Institute, directed by Pastor Joe Propri. I'm pleased to be an instructor with BCI and also serve on the board. Joe is here. Joe? Your hand. Wake up, Joe. There you go. He has a table set up in the fellowship hall, and I'm sure he'd be glad to talk to you. The one distinctive feature about BCI is that not only can you do the training through DVDs, we will come to your church and do the training live for you and for your people. Now, any one of these would be a most viable option for you to, be, to begin to be taught how to biblically counsel. Any one of these would be a wonderful resource for you to begin to teach biblical counseling to your people. The result then, Paul gives us here in Colossians, what brings real comfort to souls in crisis? The gospel of Jesus Christ. How has God determined that message to come through the preaching of the word, the counseling of the word, and the teaching of the word, whose subject is Jesus Christ? And what will the promised result be? That we may present every man perfect. In Christ Jesus. What a great promise. As pastors, that's our heart's desire, isn't it, for our people? Here's the goal then of the threefold ministry to the sheep. May God keep us faithful, men, and raise up others to do this glorious task that the kingdom of Jesus Christ may be advanced in the hearts of men, even through crisis. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for meeting with us and for the great privilege that's been mine to open your word tonight. Thank you for the patience of these who have come. And Father, we pray that you would instill your word in us in a passion and a love for your, you and for your word. 
Father, I pray that you would encourage these men in their ministries. I pray, Father, that you would just allow them to to be blessed and encouraged in the prospects of biblically counseling from the Word of God. And Heavenly Fathers, we think think of those tonight who who may be in crisis. We're reminded of our tasks as under-shepherds. And we remember that sheep need a shepherd because they've lost their way. That sheep need a shepherd because they cannot bind their own wounds. Sheep need a shepherd because they cannot defend themselves. Sheep need a shepherd because they cannot find pasture on their own. Help us then, Father, to be suitable shepherds to your sheep for the glory and the sake of our chief shepherd, Jesus Christ. And we pray it in his name. Amen.